Hello everybody, welcome to this latest episode of Who's Round, which is part two of my chat with director Graham Harper. Enjoy. Well, unbeknown to me, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, nothing happened for the first series. Um, and I was offered something else, which, boy, was that big. It was a big action-adventure series set up in the north, the east, um, called Steel River Blues, which is about the fire brigade in what was um, Ridley Scott's area, because he came from Redcar. Um, and what's the film called that he made? Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Was based, is the scenario the setting is based on red car and petrochemical all the lights because lots of flames and lights and it's all night in, uh, in that in that film um, so we were doing a big fire brigade series because um, London burning had been stopped two or three years before and they wanted it back but now in in the northeast so it was in petrochemical land so we were talking serious going up now um, so I did this uh, and what happened was I had we had so many big effects to do massive effects but they were live to do on the set with fires and explosions and petrochemical explosions um, as it was coming to a draw to an end I got a phone call from Phil Collinson who I knew was the producer of Doctor Who I didn't know quite what Russell T Davis' role was then um, so he asked me if I would come and meet him and Russell um, to discuss Doctor Who. So we met in a restaurant one lunchtime um, and we talked for two hours and at the end of it, Russell said, well, I, 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 I have to say that... Um, no, it was Phil, so I have to um, say that we're definitely going to um, offer you a block. Uh, I'm not sure when it's going to be, Graham, but it'll be sometime between this that time. So uh, we'll get back to you as soon as possible. It's been a real pleasure. Bye-bye. And as I left, I said... I was, I mean, I was thrilled um, because the first series had already happened, and this was 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 happening, and they were planning for the next series. They'd been given go ahead, and and I thought it was terrific the series. And I said, first of all, what was it that now has made you decide you want me? Meaning you didn't want me in the first series. So what 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 what's different? And he, Russell said. We watched, before we invited you, decided to invite you, we watched Caves of Androzani, which she said I thought was one of the best doctors. This was um, uh, Russell. And he said, and what struck us was you managed, in a tired series that was dying, you managed to kick it up the backside, have this fantastic story um, that didn't rely on uh, effects, it relied on good drama, good, good performances, a lot of action. And you had three cliffhangers that were to die for, each one. Um, And he said, we've never seen that in any of the series. We've never seen that. And that's what we wanted in the first series here, and we got. And that's what we saw in you. That's why we're meeting you. And and that's how I came. That's what happened. Um, (laughs) And then when I, about a month later, um, my agent rang me and said, well, they've offered you two blocks. And that's how I ended up doing... um, Dance and Cybermen. They all, I mean, I don't know if it was a fluke, whether they all were getting to do both or whether they realised, oh, 
We've got them there, and we've got them at the end. So we, uh, we've got ground in the first lot, so we'll have to make... He'll have to do the lot. I'm not sure whether it was... Um, it'll be brilliant or he's going to be wonderful. I think it was... Um, they were stuck with it, economically. Because like, you did them all together, though, didn't you? I did 52... That, that, those four episodes were done on a 52-day shoot. It's a feature film. Yeah, because <coughs> funny enough, when I interviewed Russell and said, you know, what did you learn from, um, you know, because obviously it's a new way of making television away because no television quite like Doctor Who and Doctor Who wasn't being made like Doctor Who used to be made. And no. he said, the one thing we learned from that series was never do a block that long because it killed everybody. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. It was hard, but the energy's still there. So, um, I, and it's funny because someone... A fan said, "All we hear about Grandma is he just has pace and energy uh, at the beginning and end, you know, of a thing." I do, um, but it doesn't come out of you know. I do say other things. I mean, we do, I do talk to actors, but I don't have big, deep conversations about depth of character. Um, not in the series I work on because there's no time. Uh, an actor comes in. They know, again, in the eighties, an actor had every right to come in and say, "Right, where do you want me?" And you as the director had to know where you wanted them, how to get the shot by being in a certain position. You, they had to, and you told them you could, you had to, you did describe a, a performance where they should play. But no, you can't do that. An actor has to come in with, um, they've read the script, they've learnt it, they've learnt a, a way they want to play it. Um, and if you come in, going back to what I was saying before, if, if you come in saying, no, the way I'd like you to play this, before they've even shown you anything, um, you're stifling, uh, A, the performance, and B, a whole production. You should just, you, from the read-through, if you're lucky enough to have a read-through, I don't know if that happens, it doesn't happen in Coronation Street, read-through, if you're lucky enough to have a read-through, you might hear the way actors are going to play it, and you can decide quietly there, and then I'm going to have a word about that, because I'd like to introduce something else. But you can't... Um, jump in you have to especially now you have to allow them to do their thing um, and then you can either nurture it in a different way add to it uh, whatever um, whereas in that period we had a great group of actors who um, I'm, I'm rambling sorry I've stopped no, 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 I've rambled off I've gone off no 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 well because well it's that, that throws up two things because yes I, I feel sore for you that because Doctor Who Confidential always has you going, yes, pace and energy, and yet, I mean, the best acted scene of that whole season, which is one that still brings lumps to people's throats, is Billy Piper's leaving scene on, on the, beach. the beach, which is directed by Mr. Pace and Energy. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, but it's a terrific emotional um, uh, payoff. So you have to, I guess you have to ha- handle your actors very gently for that and make sure you don't get them to do it too often. Do you know what happened on the morning of that? I remember I was really, really worried. I mean, we did it. I had, I got to know the actors quite well by then. Um, uh, so I wasn't, I was not on, I was always at ease with. And um, I remember it was really cold, windy, bleak, blustery day we were going to spend on the beach. And it was really cold. And I went to the makeup van, because I knew they were in there being made up. Um, to say, can we have a talk about how we're going to approach shooting this scene? And then we discussed it, the scene, and what we wanted to get out of it. Just discussed the depth of not kissing or kissing, or they do touch, but just they're going to kiss, he disappeared, and how we're going to play this tender moment. And then I said, so we didn't discuss the history, because they've just played the history of their relationship, 
um, for the last ten episodes. So I, all I remember saying was, <laughs> who would like to go first when I start doing the close-up work? So we're going to set it up in a wide shot and all the approach to it. And then I'm going to go into all the close work, which will be the work that's going to cover all the emotion and the tears. Who do I do first? And I knew they would have talked about that. So, and, and David, um, and David said, um, "Right, we discussed that, and uh, we think Billy should be the first person you do." Well, that's correct because the tradition is you. Uh, the tradition in filmmaking is that you always do the ladies' close-ups first. That's tradition. But in this case, it was not to do with tradition. It was to do with um, emotion and whether her. T- she said to me. I can produce tears, I bet, only once, but I can do it and it'll, be, it'll happen. I know it's going to happen the very first take because she was leaving, really. So she was very emotional. Uh, this was the last scene. She didn't know she was coming back later and nobody anybody else did, but she thought this was the end for her. And she said, as soon as we have this scene going, I know I'm going to cry. So um, we've decided I go first because of that. And um, it's really down to you when, we, when you say, because I'm not going to perform this, Graham, until um, you say turn over and we're reshooting it. So I said, OK, I'm, I'm really happy now. I'm, I'm, that's fine. And so we, do all the, we did all the build-up and the wide shots up to a certain point, but not the meat, not in this moment. And then uh, that's what we did. But I don't see what that's got to do with directing somehow. In the end, or that's there you are. That's I allow actors to be good. Well, I allowed them to be good. They didn't need me. They knew exactly what they were going to do, and they played it. You facilitated it in a way. That yeah, it's a, I, I, I'm, I, I'm probably doing a lot of directors out of uh, an injustice here. But I, I just see it that I, uh, I, we don't do, we don't, we don't. I'm not Noel Coward. I'm not the master. We don't have masters anymore. Yes, there are. There are Mike Lee's a master, but I. I'm a television director and I have restrictions. I've got to work within those restrictions and um, a lot of that is lack of planning and lack of rehearsal with artists because we don't have it anymore. We have five minutes before we shoot a scene and that's meant to be the most wonderful, brilliant moments in the world. And a lot of times it is, but it's luck. Mm-hmm. OK, well, let's bring Mr Pace and Energy, Mr Action Adventure... There's also a massive streak of comedy that runs through your career, and you had a period where you went from what was it, a New Statesman to what was the one with Ray Winston and John oh, Barton, uh, uh, Get Back. Get Back. So, so you've got a lot of comedy running through that, and you can see that in your Doc Two's lot. Revelation of the Daleks is a sort of black comedy. Um, the Unicorn and the Wasp is a sort of period piece pastiche. So where does your sense of humour lie, and how? Uh, and if you're directing something with a boy. Were you directing something with a humorous bent, or did you inject the humor into it? How do you, how do you, how do you know? Judge the correct tone for the humor of a piece, especially in something that's remitted actually to be an adventure story. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> well, look um, at black comedy, say, in, in Revelation, because it's it's very violent that. Yeah. But it's also it's got quite a dark humor to it. I I wanted to have the comedy because um, uh, I'm a firm believer that when you I come from a period again with Doctor Who was, as kids, I was never a kid with Doctor Who, but I was a young guy, I was a young guy, but when Doctor Who came out, I was uh, 63, so I'd have been 18. So I was not a kid hiding behind the sofa. Um, I was surprised how good that first first episode, the first um, 
series was. But I didn't become an avid viewer of it. I, it never hooked me. It hooked me when I started working on it. But it never hooked me as a viewer. I was never desperate about it because I found it a bit kind of creaky, I think. A bit cranky. Um, I was much more interested in what was, well, war films and the new action adventure that was coming up slowly through um, Spielberg and, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Lucas. Lucas. So, um, I've talked myself off the track. So, so bringing comedy into Revelation? So, I knew that uh, that story, um, Caves of Androzani, definitely was violent. And, and I, in those days, there was, a, there, was certain, there were different rules to how much violence you've shown. And there's one really, I think, terrifying sequence in that with um, Stotzi and Kelper. Uh, and I think Kelper. Stotzi is, is standing over his leg and I'm shooting through his legs to a face and a f- huge drop below um, uh, w- with a man about to kind of I, thought, I can't remember what he was going to do was he going to shoot he, him? He, he, he holds him over the cliff edge and he sticks a poison capsule he's got a capsule, that's right yeah. he's going to push him over and he pushes his head up and I know the way I shot that was pretty violent and aggressive um, I wanted to do it because it was visually fun to do and, and, and exciting but I knew um, in, in the next story that you had to have comedy because it was grim there was a grimness about that um, uh, uh, that was stay with kids um, I think probably because I had children uh, a young girl who was um, who I knew would be very very um, shocked by uh, uh, by that so I put no I didn't put comedy in I I wanted the, the comic moments out of it. There are, with them, Lauren Hardy, there are. Yeah. They're, 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 they're kind of a bit gung-ho, the way they're going to kill people. I mean, but, and there's a kind of comedy, comic moment out of them. Um, I, I just felt we needed to have that comedy moment. And I think it was written like that anyway, but I, I wanted to have the, the lightness every now and then, just to make people laugh, just to say it's not real. This is a bit of fun, yeah. folks. Yeah, it's beautiful. And what I, what I love about it, and, and sometimes I, I would say John Nathan Turner's desire for stars doesn't often doesn't always work, but I think it totally does. In in Revelation, we got William Gaunt, best known at that time for being Mr. Sitcom, as an assassin with a with a metal leg, who's absolutely it's a and, and performance of brilliant. It, it was it was it was well it was based on um, uh, uh, oh after, should come prepared names um, Don Quixote. Um, uh, and, and his psychic I mean that's who they were that's what they were playing and, and, and there's a, a, a comedy moment out of that there's a comic moment out of an Eleanor Bronze character and I just, Hugh Walters as and well and Hugh Walters was, was stunning <laughs> I'd never I've worked with him a lot um, both as an you know as an assistant director working on with him playing scenes but I worked on a lot of productions with him and here I was directing this man who I thought was just stunning and really underrated yeah, and when you've got an actor like that in a in a, in a supporting role like that, you know you you know right. you're going to be all right. Yeah, no, yeah. I I, I, John was funny about casting. You're absolutely right. His um, light light entertainment casting in the the last couple of series, I, I thought was odd. Um, I didn't understand that because this is a cruel thing to say, but I think. With Doctor Who, you, the, the way to play it is absolutely straight down the line. Believe in everything you're doing, and uh, and don't laugh at it within the you know. Don't do it sort of tongue in cheek. Do it for real. Um, and I thought some of the not. I don't mean the Doctor Who's. I'm talking about some of the guest actors. Um, 
uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention names, but there, there are. I, I just find it a bit. You know, people are going to sit down and watch, but I'm not sure what they're going to actually get out of it. Um, seemed odd to have those characters when they could have had a really good actor being just as light but much more interesting. Blah blah blah. Yeah, well, no, and I think it's a problem Doctor Who always flirts with because it becomes very popular for actors to do, so everyone wants to be in it. And of course, if you're a producer and a star wants to do your show, that's you know that's appealing, isn't it? Oh, I I know that. Um Everybody says that um, we managed to get Laurence Olivier interested in playing the mutant. Yes. I think not. <laughs> I think his agent said, mm, well, what is the part? And when he was told, he said, certainly not, or whatever. Or put the phone down. I think that came about because <laughs> Gorn Granger was Olivier's biographer. And he'd done, he'd done a Doctor Who a few stories before that. And John had said... Lawrence Olivier's always wanted to do a Who hasn't he? And Gorn Granger said, "Yeah, I, I think so, but he'd only do he'd only do it if it was all on a film. face or something. Yeah, he, 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 wouldn't, he wouldn't do electronic studio. He'd do it if it was a small part all on film. So I think John looked at what he'd got coming up and went, well, that's, that's a small film. part. And it's on film. Film. <laughs> well, the fact that he gets beaten around the head and rolls down a hill he... <laughs> and then dies, and you don't know who it is, no, and it's covered in makeup. <laughs> oh dear. So okay, well, bring us round it because I'm uh, taking up far too much of your time. Um, um, well, I'm interested in the comedy then, because you are. Because uh, we've talked before, when you're doing the soap operas, you are you are the man that's brought into. To if the soap needs to blow something up or crash something, you're the man. You're Mr. Pace and Energy, but you have, that's not to underestimate the fact that you've directed a lot of. You know, the New Statesman is one of the defining comedies of its time, and you helmed a lot of those. Um, so, how did this sort of segue into into comedy? Come on, are you? Uh, you've talked about how comfortable you are with putting big stuff on the screen, so where does the comedy come from and was that something you, you therefore enjoyed less, are you saying? I, I think most actors um, will say, if, they, if, if they're ever asked, have you ever worked with Graham Harper, they'll remember that I ruined many takes because I fall about with laughter, <laughs> uh, why we're here. Because sometimes when you're watching the monitor and you think, how have I got to... Be? You suddenly slip out of yourself and look at yourself going... Have you got to be here doing this? I find it funny, and uh, and I find the fact that actors are pretend to cuddle a cat and give it lots of love when they hate the cats. Uh, I find that moment funny, and I, I laugh, um, destroy scenes, and destroy scenes because I think they're funny, and, and and I shouldn't be laughing because we've seen enough rehearsal for me not to laugh. Um, I was doing um, Stay Lucky, and. Uh, with Dennis Waterman and Jan Francis. And the producer, um, uh, Andrew Benson, um, at the end of one of the series, he said to me, I've just been offered by Granada to do New Statesman, which was made by, uh, not Granada, Yorkshire Television, uh, which was made there. And all the production used to come up um, to make it at Yorkshire Television, for Yorkshire Television. And he said, um, so I'm going to stay on. Do you fancy drink? Because we'd love you. David Reynolds, who's there, the comedy drama set there, um, agreed that he'd like me to come and uh, do it, having watched the comedy we were doing on the uh, on New, New States. Sorry, on uh, Stay Lucky. So, um, and and we, I, I couldn't believe it. Me doing New Statesman? Yeah. I, yeah, are you sure? And uh, it was odd. Why? Where did that come from? But it was because I've done a lot of comedy 
all covered a lot of comedy and comedy drama. Um, all the comedy series, uh, drama series I've worked on really, I mean Bergerac had lots of comedy in it there were great comic moments as well as the um, the adventure that was going on um, so I said yeah no I'll have a go, that's great and he, Andrew was producing it and that was good for me because I absolutely loved working with him so um, off we went, the two of us not knowing having done nothing really in comedy in our lives apart from comedy drama we set off and did this um, if you talk to people about New Statesman, they don't remember me. They remember um, Jeff Sachs because Jeff did a special and two episode, uh, two series, the first two series, and then he got a call to America or whatever. So he went off and uh, um, started working in movies. He directed the pilot of the American Doctor Who. Uh, uh, he did. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? And good. I mean, I thought his side of it was brilliant. I thought the story was not so brilliant, but but his side and the Doctor was stunning. It was a, that that could have built a new series definitely um, so good yeah so we called it New Statesman and you're saying so, people don't talk about you so th- no they, they won't remember I did I just did, I just did the last two uh, series and one series was absolutely stunning but the last series um, kind of failed because it was set in Europe and if you know anybody any politicians in Europe now um, and you can mention who's in Brussels um because I didn't know anybody, and I think that was why it didn't. It failed. Um, watching Bastard getting richer and richer by doing lots of deals with people in Europe that nobody knew and, and nobody really cared about kind of killed the series. Um, so I'm sort of attached to the ending of it, as it were, and um, that's it. So that's that. I'm not, not bitter about it. I'm just saying I'm not remembered for it. If anybody remembers anything, it's always Jeff Sachs directed um, the series. But in fact, there were two of us. Well, well, I mean, I think you, I think there are certain key moments in Doctor Who that I definitely remember. I mean, if you talk about when you know, Doctor Who is popular now, but it hit its apex of popularity in its new incarnation with that with the story that you directed, the the, the, the Stolen Earth and, and Journey's End, was where every single part of that melting pot of the the show that no, was a joke that had come back, that had been this unexpected success, that yeah. actually deep down a lot of people hoped and knew would be a success and then suddenly it became even more of a success I mean you must have been in in the eye of the storm I mean was it exciting was it hard yeah. hard work I mean tell, tell me about it no it was um, I have to honestly say it's not because it's Doctor Who I, I had the best time of my life um, it's not only from the moment I started Doctor Who in 19, uh, 2006 to now that's the best time in my career and look at me, I'm 70 years old so it's the last 10 years of my life as a director have been the best, the best for me and, and the two reasons why are because I was at the peak of what I could do um, Yeah, I'm like uh, 38 year old, 40 year old tennis player I'm on the down now, that's it that I've peaked um, but I've peaked at the right time doing Doctor Who which was the most complex the biggest um, thing I'd ever done what became the next biggest thing was the, uh, was Coronation um, tram, Coronation Street tram crash um, if I hadn't done Doctor Who, well I wouldn't have been asked to do it because Phil Collinson wouldn't have known me but if I hadn't have done Doctor Who uh, and learnt all the things that we did and how to go about 
the big uh, visuals of that, um, I couldn't have attempted to do... Uh, I would have been a failure on the tram crash. But I had no fear. It was, whereas 15, 20 years ago, I'd have been terrified of both of those, the train crash and the tram crash and Doctor Who. But I had no fear. I wanted to do it. I wanted to show what I could do with this show, what I could add to it. And I saw what other people added to it, and I wanted to do it as well. It was, that was what, that, and it came through Doctor Who. It could have been something else. It could have been another show completely. But it, was, it happened to be Doctor Who that I got my opportunity to show just what I could do. And I'm satisfied. I'm not going to be a bitter old director who never quite made the movie he dreamt of. I did that. I'm really happy. So, and, and, and subsequently everything else, because out of that came the train crash, tram crash, and a train crash. Massive train crash, extraordinary to just in, in Hollyoaks. Yeah, so both those shows they, they were enormous. Both those that show, Coronation Street, that was the biggest thing I'd ever done, bigger than Doctor Who, because it was massive. Uh, the three episodes that I did, and then Tony comes along and does an extraordinary live episode, and five others that are also brilliant. That was an extraordinary, unusual period of good drama. And, and, the, and the Hollyoaks was the same. They all rose to the occasion. Um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, so no unfulfilled ambitions then? Yeah, I want to make a movie. Make <laughs> but I'm not bitter about that. I haven't. I'm, there's something in the offing, and I, it's, it's close. We'll see. If that happens, I'll let you know. And, the and reason, if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And matter. is the reason it didn't happen was because you were too busy concentrating on television, or were the moments where you flirted with um, those possibilities? No, I, I had very. I, I had a production company with um, uh, a, a producer, um, Evgeny Gridnev, who. Um, Star Cops. He did Star Cops and Tenko, and he didn't do. He wrote Tenko, uh, Star Cops, and um, Hold the Back Page, amongst others. Um, and uh, we we run a, uh, we we had about forty productions by the end that we were trying to get off the ground. And we got lucky with one, but unfortunately nobody wants to buy it. But we had it. We got um, Yorkshire to um, buy a project from us and then help us develop it for three years, but it didn't happen in the end. Um, so we nearly got there. Because um, that would have been a film, but uh, but it didn't happen. So yes, I wanted to make a film. I wanted to make a western, and I've got the western, but I haven't got anybody interested. So. And how about the future of television? As somebody that's you know seen the changes that are obvious to us from those who watched Doctor Who back in the day and, and now, and all the changes that have happened that we've talked about, are you hopeful that that, that Britain can still make good drama in the future? with all the changes that are being made? Yeah, because the people coming through now don't know any different, so they'll make good drama based on what they know how to make and how they will make it. Uh, because, of, because of the fantastic cameras that we have now and equipment, um, but the look of things, anything can now look as if it was made on a feature film budget, the look of it. Um, we, we're blessed at the moment so with that um, good actors actors don't need lots and lots of rehearsal but they need time they need the time to develop it In the, you know, if we're going to just block through a scene quickly and then shoot it there and then in an hour and a half three pages um, they, they just need the time to do it don't do it in an hour and a half do it in two hours and, and let's do it properly and if we get quicker then let's then maybe have another standby scene at the end of the day that everybody's agreed to 
quickly learn the lines. We might do it, who knows, if we got luck. And if not, they've had the right time to do things. But we're So if you're not used to that or that's not the way it is, then that's what you will make. You will make good dramas based on how much time you've got and how good you can make it in the time you've got. Um, a lot of it will be good and some will be awful. Depends who's steering it. Who? Time-wise, I've taken up far more viewers than I said I would, so uh, I'm going to ask you the two, the two final questions, which are, what's your charity of choice, Ray? I, I would like anybody who's interested to send a donation to the Mission to Seamen, who are a society that I think are not really talked about very much and who look after um, sailors who are um, a long, long way away from home on long journeys, probably never going to get back for eight or nine months, um, making sure letters get to them, so they've got a bed if they want to stay on land for a, a night or two, um, uh, 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 and they can be fed, they, can, they have somewhere um, to go to be helped or looked after or, or to sort their lives out um, when they're a long way from home. Lovely, and I will do a link in my intro. And the final question is that this podcast was initially convened to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. Uh, lots of Doctor Who fans listen to this. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Me, I would say keep watching, because I think every series is different and every series gets better and better, so keep watching. It's going to be good. Graham Harper, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bless you. Sorry I had that so close, but... Um... My thanks to Graham. What a lovely fellow, and of course, what a brilliant director. Um, he would like to direct you to the Mission to Seafarers, which is Mission to Seafarers, uh, all one word, uh, all letters, so it's 2 T-O, not, not the number 2 or any fancy things like that. Mission to Seafarers.org. Mission to Seafarers.org. As ever, if you can donate, if everybody that listened to this just donated a pound, I think some good would be done. So, uh, I know it takes a little bit of going onto the internet and filling out a form, but uh, come on, let's uh, make sure some good comes out of my endeavours to uh, talk to everybody, seemingly, who's ever set foot on a set of Doctor Who. Uh, another one of those uh, will be coming along next week. But for now, thanks for listening, and uh, take care. Bye-bye. As the Spectrum jet touched down at London International Airport, an intercontinental airliner from Central Africa Airport was touching down on a parallel runway. Among the passengers who alighted was Professor Standal. He thrust his way unceremoniously through the crowd and showed a pass to an official. Ah, yes, Professor. Your private plane has been refuelled and is waiting on runway 27. Standal strode away, cape flapping about his gaunt shoulders like bat wings about to open. A few yards behind him walked a powerfully built man in a dark suit with a strange pallor on his clean-shaven face. An airport worker who brushed against him glanced up at him, then turned away with a little shudder. What's wrong, Sam? You look like you had a fright. It's that bloke that just passed. Horrible look on his face, like a walking corpse. 
Like death warmed up, eh? <laughs> Come along. What you need's a nice strong cover. The men they were talking about moved on in the wake of the scientist. Suddenly, he drew back behind a luggage truck, his ashen face tense. Captain Scarlet here. Is it just coincidence, or...? Scarlet came into view, carrying a small case, making for the airport buildings. Suddenly he checked, and the watching man quickly slid away out of sight round the bend of the truck. Scarlet frowned, looking about him suspiciously. Strange. I had that faint dizzy sensation I sometimes get when there's a Mr. On agent around. He hesitated for a moment or so, but the feeling did not return. He shrugged and walked on. Yes, I must have been mistaken. But if I wasn't, there would be precious little chance of finding him among these crowds. Not without my Mr. On detector anyway. So Captain Scarlet and his deadly enemy, Captain Black, the former Spectrum agent who led the expedition on Mars and whose body was taken over by the Mysterons, passed within yards of each other. Had Scarlet seen his enemy first, the history of the next few weeks might have been very different. While Scarlet was getting into a hover taxi outside the airport to travel into London, Captain Black was stowing away in the private helijet of Professor Stendhal.